So, you're reading your Bible and you come across a difficult passage. You know there's an important point that there's something to learn, but you just can't figure it out. If you've ever been there, join the club, but whatever you do, don't be discouraged. In this episode, we combine everything we've learned this season and apply it to one challenging text in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll discuss how textual, historical, and literary criticism come together to improve our Bible study. These are practical principles we can apply to any biblical text. So get your Bible ready and let's dive into Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46 together. This is Grant. And this is Jerome. You're listening to Reconciled, where we explore how Jesus finds us where we are, wherever we are, and leads us to where we need to be. We've had several dense discussions about various tools we can use to determine the validity of the Bible. Now we're going to put them all together into practice and see how it helps us understand one passage. Right. We're going to try a step-by-step approach to Bible study. And the first step is pretty obvious. Number one read the text. Oh. <laughs> Matthew 22:41 to 46. Go ahead, Grant. Now while the Pharisees gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, "What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he?" And they said to him, "The son of David." And he said to them, "How is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, "The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet?" If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him in a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Great. Check that box. Step number one complete. Now we might have a lot of questions at this point, and that's okay. But the first step is to put the questions on hold and just read the text through. And you might try reading it a few different ways. Read it silently, then read it out loud. Try reading it slowly, then read it quickly. You might try reading from a few different translations, too. It's always helpful to read a text multiple times in different ways just to get more familiar with it. Yeah, there are always many things you don't pick up the first time around. Okay, Mm -hmm. step one, check. We read the text. What's next? Now we have to set the text into its context. Because like we talked about last time, the context in which something is said is actually part of what it means. Right. So we have to read it in light of both its historical context and its literary context. Okay. So let's set the stage historically and ask who, when, and where questions. This scene took place about 2,000 years ago in the temple precinct of Jerusalem. We learned that from verse 23 of the same chapter. And at this time, faithful Jewish people were awaiting their Messiah or their Christ, right? The anointed one. So foretold in the Old Testament, this person was supposed to come in and would set up his kingdom and restore Israel. Yes, but many of them expected the Christ to be a military figure who would liberate them from their pagan Gentile oppressors. And at this time, that specifically would have been Rome, right? Exactly. All of this takes place against the political backdrop of God's covenant people, Israel, living under Roman rule. And Jesus has come onto the scene challenging both the religious powers of Jerusalem and the claims that Caesar is the true Lord of the world. So wherever Jesus goes, by challenging the world as it is, he causes controversy. And that's exactly what's happening in this text. So let's transition from the historical context to the literary context of this passage and see how it plays out. So Matthew is one of the four Gospels, which are, as we talked about last time, 
genres unto themselves, persuasive, theologically charged, and historically accurate biographies of Jesus. The point of which is to convince the reader of Jesus's identity so that they can believe in him and have life. Right. And in the case of Matthew, whose audience was mainly Jewish, his goal was to portray Jesus as a greater than Moses figure who fulfills all Old Testament prophecy and whose resurrection enthroned him as king over heaven and earth. So how does this scene in chapter 22 fit into Matthew's larger narrative? Well, Matthew began his gospel with a genealogy which to the modern reader seems like a strange way to begin a book. But genealogies were very important to the Jewish people because they traced their ethnicity and God's promises through a family line. And this really goes back to their view of Abraham and the covenant given to him, that God was going to bless all nations through this Jewish people. Right. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, a pivotal verse we'll come back to later. Also, the Jewish Messiah, or the Greek word for that is Christ, would be descended from King David of the tribe of Judah. Because God made David a promise that someone from his family would always rule in Jerusalem, and he would establish his kingdom forever. Exactly. Another essential text that would be in the mind of every faithful Jew, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, watch how Matthew deliberately connects Jesus to both key figures in the very first verse of the book. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 reads, The book of the beginning of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And by beginning his gospel account with the genealogy, Matthew shows the Jewish reader that Jesus has the pedigree to be Israel's Messiah. Right. From his opening statement, Matthew claims that Jesus has come to be the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bring blessing to the whole world and the fulfillment of God's promise to David to rule his kingdom eternally. The rest of Matthew's gospel shows how Jesus fulfills those promises. All right, so let's zoom in on our text. How do verses 41 through 46 fit into the more immediate context in the book? Well, chapter 22 is getting near to the end of the book of Matthew, into the last week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Now, where before, Jesus had to be very careful not to draw too much attention to himself. Now, he's become much more bold, much more explicit in his teaching and in his confrontations with his opponents. Okay, so Jesus is really turning up the heat in this conversation. Mm -hmm. So what has he been doing leading up to our verses? Well, chapter 21 began with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt in direct, intentional fulfillment of a messianic prophecy in the book of Zechariah. Then he openly accepts the praise of the crowd that the Christ would come and save them. He was the king, and his acceptance of worship was a claim to his right to rule. Then the next day, in chapter 21, he came back to the temple, and he brought the sacrificial system to a screeching halt. He waltzed into the temple and overturned the tables of money changers. He rebuked them for defiling God's house. And then he performed miracles in the temple, again accepting praise from the crowd as they worshipped him as the Savior. And then he cursed a barren fig tree as a symbol of destruction of spiritually barren Jerusalem. And all the while, the Jewish leadership is just not having it. Not at all. In fact, they were so fed up with him that they went into the temple and they actually interrupted Jesus while he was teaching and they challenged his authority. They said, by what authority are you doing these things? So chapter 22 is a series of confrontations between Christ and his opponents. 
They're all trying to trap him in his words, either to say something heretical so that they could discredit him with the Jews, or to say something against Rome, say something politically explosive to make him sound like a political threat. And how does that work out for him? Not well at all. Each time his opponents challenge him with what they think is an impossible scenario or a paradoxical question, Jesus always gets the better of them, and they end up looking like fools. But in verse 41, Jesus is the one asking the question. Yes, so they couldn't question any of Jesus' answers, so Jesus turns the tables and he asks them a question that they couldn't answer. Okay, so it's a little taste of their own medicine now. Right, and his question was, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So it's a question of the identity of the Messiah, but that seems like an obvious question. Mm -hmm. We already noted that every Jew knew that the Christ would be King David's son because of God's promise to him in 2 Samuel 7, and that's how they answer. Right. It was a softball question, and they were exactly right. They answered correctly, just how Matthew began his gospel, that Jesus is the son of David. But the identity of the Christ was much more complex than the Jews thought. So Jesus is asking them how their notion of the Christ fits into a particular passage of Scripture. First, they respond correctly by saying that the Christ is the son of David. Then Jesus asks them, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? And he quotes an Old Testament passage. But why would it matter that David calls him Lord? Well, here's where we're really going to have to pay close attention to those details. Step three is to compare your text with other passages. All scripture is in harmony with itself. No two passages are going to contradict one another. To have a balanced, accurate view, it has to be shaped by the whole of scripture and not just one verse. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's taking something that was widely understood, that the Christ is David's son, and he's comparing it with another text. In this case, that'd be Psalm 110 in verse 1, which is, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Right. God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 and David's poem in Psalm 110 both have to be true. Now, first, notice that Jesus attributes the words of the psalm to David. Why is that so important? Well, recognizing that David is the author of the psalm is the key to understanding the psalm. As we said before, everyone knew that the Christ would be David's son. But in the ancient world, fathers were always greater than their sons. If the Christ is the son of David, then David should be greater. But Jesus said that David actually calls him Lord. Lord as in he's superior to David, not the other way around? Yeah, and that's the puzzle. How can the Christ be both David's son, his lesser, and David's Lord, his better? It can't be either or. It has to be both and. But Jesus doesn't actually answer the question. He quotes the psalm and just leaves it hanging there. Why ask the question if he's not going to answer it? Well, the question wasn't meant to stump his audience or one-up them. That's what they were trying to do to him. Jesus is trying to show them that they have a serious flaw in their perception of the Christ. This wasn't a question they'd ever even thought to ask, let alone know how to answer, even though the answer was standing right in front of them. So Jesus is trying to get them to rethink their expectations of the Christ in view of Psalm 110. Yes. Remember, they were expecting the Christ to be a merely human, nationalist descendant of David. And by quoting Psalm 110, a text everyone agreed was both messianic in content and Davidic in authorship, he shows that the Christ is not merely human. How so? 
How does David calling him Lord prove the Christ would be something more than a mere human? Because David was the king of Israel. David was the greatest man on earth at that time. He answered to no one but God, and yet he calls him Lord. For David to call his own son Lord means that his son is somehow greater than he is. That the Christ would be human, but he would also be divine. That's the point he's trying to make here. The Christ would be David's son, but he would also be David's God. The Pharisees' failure to understand that dual nature of the Christ, his humanity, and his divinity contributed to their rejection of Jesus as the Christ. So he's trying to get them to see that for themselves by taking what they know from 2 Samuel 7 and then joining it with the wording of Psalm 110. And in addition to schooling them, really, on the Christ identity, Jesus also schools them on how they should study their Bibles. Right. He schools them and he schools us. Uh, Bible study is a bit like connecting the dots. You know, God gives us information in different places, but he expects us to put it all together to get the big picture. So the Pharisees' perception of the Christ, it was too rigid. They couldn't fit it into what Psalm 110 said. And instead of wrestling with the psalm, comparing it with other texts, and trying to make sense of it, even if it meant altering their views, they didn't really have an answer. Verse 46 says, and no one was able to answer him with a word. Exactly. That's not to say Psalm 110 was an easy psalm to understand. It wasn't. It was particularly puzzling to the Jews because David is describing a king who rules with power, but then in verse 4 of the psalm, the king is also a priest, which doesn't make any sense to a Jew. Because the kings couldn't be priests under the law of Moses? Right. Kings came from the tribe of Judah, and priests came from the tribe of Levi. So there was never a time in Israel's history when the king was also a priest. So the rabbis didn't really know what to make of Psalm 110. It is a confusing psalm. Why are there two lords in the passage? Mm. Verse 44 says, the Lord said to my Lord. Well, that's an important thing to note, which brings us to step four. Carefully note the wording of the text. Let's apply some textual criticism here. Both words for Lord in verse 44 are the Greek word kurios which is a, just a general term for a master. But when we compare Jesus' quotation of the psalm in Matthew with how the psalm appears in the Old Testament, we notice that there are two different lords there. Okay, I think I see what you mean. So the first one is Lord, L-O-R-D, in all caps. And the other one just has the L capitalized, and the rest of it, the O-R-D, all lowercase. So what's the difference between those? There are actually two completely different Hebrew words, and that's the translator's way of cueing us into that. The Lord, in all caps, is actually Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God, the existing one. The regular Lord, just with the L capitalized, is the Hebrew word Adonai, the general Hebrew word for a master. So the picture of Psalm 110 is of Yahweh speaking to David about David's Lord, who would be both king and priest, both human and divine. That's right. And until the Pharisees could accept this challenging, more complex view of the Christ, they would never enter the kingdom. Why don't we see the difference between the two lords in the book of Matthew then? Because in Matthew, Jesus was quoting from the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is another thing we might consider. 
The original manuscript of Psalm 110 was long gone by the time Jesus walked the earth, but he quoted a translation of the psalm, fully confident that it was still God-breathed truth. So maybe not the immediate purpose of the text, but it is amazing that if Jesus quoted from a Greek translation of the Bible in his day, that we can also be confident in our English translations of the Bible today. Absolutely. Now, that's not to say that all translations are good, but we needn't cast doubt on the science of textual criticism and the integrity of the many fair and accurate translations available to us today. So there's a fifth lesson here. We ought to appreciate the inspired nature of the text. Look back at verse 43. Not only does Jesus attribute Psalm 110 to David, but he also says that David spoke in the Spirit. Would that be the Spirit of God? Yeah. Meaning God was speaking through David as he said these words. This would go back to kind of our first episode when we talked about all Scripture being God-breathed and profitable for us. Exactly. The implication is that whatever David said in Psalm 110 isn't trivial. The words of the psalm, they weren't David's opinion, but they were God's words, and so they have significance to us. And as you quoted Second Timothy, this is true of all Scripture. So we ought to be reading the whole Bible this way, with the appreciation that every book, every passage, every word has its place. Yeah, if, if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap as the Pharisees, where our minds can settle on an issue so decisively that even if there is a Scripture that challenges our view, we'll never budge. Like how the Pharisees couldn't see that Psalm 110 said that the Christ would be David's son and David's Lord. Yeah, Jesus is teaching the Pharisees and he's teaching us that every passage has its place. Every verse and every book is significant because at the end of the day, it's all God's word. Jesus appreciated the inspired nature of the text and so should we. Okay, so just to kind of put a bow on all of this, we'll look back at the five steps. So what we've walked through is that one, we need to read the text and we need to read it multiple times and in different ways. Mm -hmm. Two, we need to set the text in its context, both its historical and literary context. Three, we need to compare the text with other passages and use the Bible to help us understand the Bible as a whole. Mm -hmm. Four, we need to carefully note the wording of the text because as we saw, some of those words, although they may appear the same, are in fact quite different. And then five, we need to appreciate the inspired nature of the text and never forget that all of our understanding of the Bible hinges on it being the word of God. Exactly. Now, there's one more thing that we have to do in Bible study, and it's perhaps the most important thing of all. The final step is to make application from the text to our life. And the best way to do this is to place yourself within the text. Like, look at the story as if you were one of the Pharisees. That's exactly what I mean, yeah, especially when we're reading the Gospels. We're meant to identify with the characters in the story. So instead of simply telling us how to respond to Jesus, the gospel authors, Matthew here, uses the various reactions of the people as a way of showing us how to, or in this case, how not to, react. So after you read a text, we should pause and we should ask ourselves, okay, how is this person reacting to Jesus' teaching? What is their motivation? Uh, What are the results of their actions? And Maybe do I resemble one of the characters in the story? Ultimately, that's what the authors of the gospel are trying to do, to present Jesus to us persuasively so that we'll respond to him. And Bible study 
should be interactive. It should be a transformative experience. The book of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active. And when we read it introspectively, it can actually change us. That's one way God works in our lives. By his spirit, through his word, he slowly changes the way we think about Jesus, the way we think about ourselves, and the way we see the whole world. And that change in thinking can alter our entire lives forever. We began this series by asking a question. Can we trust the Bible? Jerome and I are firmly convicted that we can. And by applying the tools of textual, historical, and literary criticism, it is our prayer that you too will trust the Bible as God's word. Reconciled is all about thinking through the difficulties of the Christian faith. We believe that if we open our heart and our mind to the scriptures, that we will be swept up into the work and life of Christ. Jesus can find us where we are, wherever we are, and lead us to where we need to be. We want to thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't done so already, please consider liking and subscribing to the podcast. If you enjoyed this discussion and want to hear more, feel free to write us a review and tell us what you think or suggest future topics for discussion. We'll see you next time.